You know that a man dies if he loses five pints of blood. The time is now. The place is the space between your ears. The people are lizards, dissecting the finest in science fictional and fantastical literature for all your auditory pleasures. You are now listening to Lizard People, Dear Readers. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Lizard People, Dear Readers, the science fiction and fantasy book podcast by Lizard People, for Lizard People, and other reptilian humanoids. I'm George Chimples and with me as always is Peter. How's it going? And Nathan Edwards. Peter doesn't get a last name. Yeah, I. He doesn't. I don't. I don't need a last name. Peter. He's, he's a he's a mononym like Snoopy or Cher. That's right. Except you guys remember when Snoop Dogg went by Snoop Doggy Dog? Do you remember when he was Snoop Lion? Yeah, he's back to Snoop Dogg now. I think. Yeah. I thought Snoop Lion was a strong move. The music was okay, but Snoop Lion, that's going from dog to a lion. That's a definite step up. It is a big, big step up. Less cuddly. There's also, of course, the obvious Puff Daddy to P. Diddy to Diddy to Puffy and whatever else that nobody cares about because he is no longer relevant. He is, however, a bad boy for life. I think it's important that we all remember that. Yeah. And so this is one of our mini episodes which we call them even though they're not that many in which in lieu of speaking about a book so that you may have time to read a book which will be in our order you will be actually will finally be getting around to the peripheral so uh read up on that dear readers please do so read up on the peripheral and in the meantime we're going to talk about some of our pop culture likes and dislikes and things we've been playing reading listening to and in particular, I'd like to know, what did you guys think about that Taylor Swift video? It was the Taylor Swiftinest video ever? I'm, I'm going to go course... out on a limb and say that neither Peter and I, Peter or I actually watched it, but I did watch a rotoscoped version of Shake It Off video, which was quite good. Well, I was referring to the episode that is, the episode, the video that has taken the internet by storm, of course, Bad Blood by Taylor Swift, a veritable who's who of Taylor Swift's best friends, which she enlists to fight in a war against Katy Perry. Wait, really? Yeah, I told you to watch the episode, the, the the video, man. I don't know why you I keep calling have put it an three episode. Three unrelated videos in front of it. Well, those were also very good, and you should have listened to those as well, because unlike you, my musical taste is egalitarian and wonderful, and you have the taste of terrible old men. That's true. It is that true. is true. Should we take four minutes and watch the video so we can talk about it? Absolutely not. I'm going to talk about it now, and you two will listen. Cool. So, Bad Blood, as we all know, was probably written as... as it, this, the, the running theory is that it was uh, directed towards Katy Perry, 
as they've had a very famous public dispute that some theorize is due to their shared paramour, John Mayer, who is possibly the worst possible person ever to date. But also... Uh, Diplo would be worse. That's... Katy Perry was dating him for a while, too. That's worse. Well... No, John Mayer's actually worse. Adam Levine. Have you heard the uh, ASAP Ferg song about Adam Levine? I have not. It's called Doe Active, and he just keeps yelling, uh, I got $100 bills for every bump on your face. He's singing about Adam Levine's proactive commercial. And then a certain part just starts yelling, Adam Levine! <laughs> this is different from the Electric Six song, Adam Levine, right? Yeah, Presumably. I now have two songs that I love about Adam Levine. I have a fantastic. lot of songs that I love about boxers, so I get where you're coming from. Yet you don't like boxing, and I do. I'm getting along with it. <laughs> um, well done, Nathan. Anyways. Bad blood. Katy Perry and, and, and Taylor Swift hate each other. Nathan, you might be more interested in the video if you knew that Kendrick Lamar was a guest on the single version that they used for the video recording. I am more interested. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's basically just a giant... He actually raps a lot on the on the track. Um but it's a giant thing of cameos from, like, Mariska Hargitay, Cindy Crawford, Ellen Pompeo from Grey's Anatomy. Because, of course, Taylor Swift has two cats named after Mariska Hargitay's character on Law & Order SVU and Ellen Pompeo's Grey's Anatomy character, Bob Gray. And <laughs> there's um, some models and the person from Paramore and some other people I don't know. And she fights Selena Gomez wearing a Katy Perry wig and... There's Haley Stanfield, and it's got Tron, and rockets, and people punching each other, and knife fights, and it's a big training montage, and it's really just a list of people's names, and they've got a funny name, and then they blow up stuff, and it's really incoherent, but I actually kind of like the song. I really should have watched this. I told you to. You 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 pos positioned it in such a way that I assumed it was a joke. To be fair, George... 90% of the vi YouTube videos that you send out should not be watched by humans. And the other 10% is Christopher Cross's song, Sailing. Which is a beautiful song. And if you listened Agreed. to it, you would know that I, it's I a beautiful song. Oh, well, clearly you haven't heard it enough, and I'll rectify that later tonight. Anyway. This is really ominous. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, this means he's going to post it on my wall like eight times. Eight. Oh, pretty much. That's basically it. Thousand. Anyways, that's Taylor my thoughts on, on Taylor Swift. Did you listen to the Algiers stuff, which is a gospel, punk, industrial... I wasn't sure where they were going. Each of those songs seemed different. Yeah, their album is going to come out... I think it'll be out by the time we release this. It's June 2nd is, I believe, their first album. I saw them open for Interpol, and it was very interesting. Oh, interesting. Because I love soul music and gospel and blues and i also love industrial and gothy stuff and very few people have fused them together in spite of the fact that you know the blues and goth stuff both sing about betrayal and um death and depression but there's like recoil and then a guy whose name i'm forgetting who i really like who's recent um future islands no 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 future islands it's the only thing I listen to now. I don't find it to be very bluesy. It's good, no. but it's not bluesy. It's just been stuck in my head for three days, so I thought I'd bring it up out of nowhere. Fair enough. It's funny that you should say nowhere, because that doesn't lead me to what I'm talking about. Ugh, whatever. That's terrible. 
Um, anyways, I really like, they put on a really good show. And like I said, they're doing this weird kind of gospel, but they're also, they're Marxists, by the way. Um, uh, so they're singing about the South uh, through this lens of like church music and blues with like really intense, like, like Africa Bombada, planet rock sounding like orchestral strings and just crazy stuff going on. A lot of different influences. So I find it very interesting. Yeah, I Great could, show. I could see that in some of the stuff you sent out. Like I said, all over the place. Yeah. Oh, the other guy I'm trying to remember is named as a uh, Willis Earl Beale, who is a very raw blues singer that does some pretty dark sounding things that I like. Um, he's, he's new as well. Speaking of raw blues, did I ever make you guys listen to Paul Pina? No. no. He was this blind bluesman from San Francisco who walked into a world music store, found a record of Tuvan throat singing, taught himself Tuvan throat singing, showed up at an exhibition of Tuvan throat singing in San Francisco, belted it out in front of this like famous Tuvan throat singer, and got invited to compete in a throat singing competition in Mongolia. Oh, you have told me about him. He's the one that is in, uh, what, Genghis Blues or whatever that documentary was? Yeah, so the Genghis Blues is the documentary about his trip to Mongolia. And it's really good. Um, it's not... It's 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 a little rough in that, it, you know, it was the 90s and, like, a bunch of people went with him. And, like, he got depressed and, you know, ran out of medication. And, like, he was the one... Uh, there's interesting balance between him being around people who like loved him and thought he was great, but didn't know him. And then being basically a loner back home in San Francisco. It's really, it's really good. Hmm. Anyway, that sounds, sounds cool. super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw one guy who learned from him. He actually taught a couple blues singers, like some basics of Tuban throat singing. And so there's this guy, Seth Augustus, who I've seen a couple times in San Francisco, who basically, his his bluesing is it's got some throat singing techniques in it, which is interesting. Tuvan throat singing is when they can they kind of sing in like two voices at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah they've got this harmonic thing going on, like multiple, yeah, self self harmonizing. Really, it sounds very odd, but really cool. And this so guy, fascinating. You know, Pulpino was a huge guy, and he like he did this really like thundering really deep style some of it's like as you might imagine really nasally and you know high pitched but what he did was like this really kind of thing only like three octaves lower and with harmonics in it it's awesome highly recommend checking it out all right even if just for an excuse to hear nathan make sounds like a didgeridoo yes that's what that sounded like The didgeridoo. Playing the didgeridoo is much uh, more difficult than I anticipated, by the way. It's good for sleep apnea. Is it? Playing it? Supposedly. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'd find it hard to sleep while playing the didgeridoo, but okay. I used to have an alarm clock that made rain noises. Is it something like that? Is that good for sleep apnea? No. No. Maybe? No. Oh. Definitely not. Fair enough. Speaking of sleep apnea, Peter, do you have any bloodborne diseases? I have all kinds of bloodborne <laughs> diseases, George, because I've been sinking a lot of time into bloodborne. 
Can I that congratulate? Was a wretched segue. <laughs> I want to congratulate myself on that segue because I think it was a fantastic segue that I greatly enjoyed making. George, three hundred nineteen points. Thank you. Uh, Anyways, George, Bloodborne negative two hundred points. Bloodborne, Bloodborne. All right, Bloodborne is not a Bloodborne disease. It's not. Thank God. You're not going to be saying that after I inject it into your neck. <laughs> that would be sad. That escalated quickly. It did. It really did. Well, you anyway. guys upset me because you didn't watch Taylor Swift, so now you guys have to have sleep apnea, and I'm sorry, but you get the punishment that you deserve. I guess. No, you know, and you will know. I don't really feel Tell like Tell me yet. about Bloodborne. I'm not going to lie. Peter's been playing Bloodborne. I have been playing Bloodborne 4. on the PlayStation 4. Bloodborne is a game on the PlayStation 4. Uh, it is published by Sony and From Software. Or developed by From Software and published by Sony. Something along those yes. lines. Um, it is a spiritual successor, kind of. Not really officially, but generally. To the Dark Souls series. Which uh, you may know from being completely famous the past couple of years. And uh, yeah, I think the best way I could describe Bloodborne is basically Dark Souls. Or steampunk Dark Souls with Cthulhu. Which you wouldn't think would work, but actually works pretty well. I would think that that would work. Really? I thought it was too obvious. But no, there are some. It's a, it's a little obvious. There, there's but... some real lurking chthonic horrors in there. They uh, it's well executed. Describe some of the monsters for us. Right, uh, you know there are your fa- standard squid face guys wandering around. There are giant hulking, slavering beasts that leap on you. Variations of the same that are you know the same except on fire. Um, something that is. New to this, that was not quite as big a deal in Bloodborne, is you'll have fights against more computer opponents that are on the same kind of size as you. So also player characters instead of also always just uh, giant hulking monstrosities. So that changes it up a little bit. Um, But generally, yeah, uh, really great creature design. I think the thing that really gets me the most about it, though, and this is something that I thought was missing in Dark Souls 2 a little bit, and uh, the level design I am deeply, crazily in love with. It's all this really great gothic, Czech-inspired castles and stuff, and they really do a good job of switchbacking and weaving everything together, where... uh, which is one of my favorite things about the first Dark Souls. And I felt it was kind of misting in Dark Souls 2. Nathan, I know you played Dark Souls 2. I don't know if you had the same kind of impression as I did, but it felt a little bit sparser to me. It it did feel sparser. Uh, I didn't get all the way through it. I did get all the way through Dark Souls 1. Um, it felt like a little less coherent. Um, Dark Souls 1 was... All all the uh, levels sort of um, connected to each other in a really obvious way that sort of made sense as a discrete world. Um, and the areas in Dark Souls 2 that I saw didn't quite have the same effect. You couldn't, like, look out from one area and see, you know, something four four areas away as much. Like, I don't know. That, just hey, that... Reason, hey, that... Well, I know, I know exactly the... the point you're talking about in dark souls like when you get up to the top of uh 
and Orlando, exactly. And you look back out over the city, and you see, oh, I just fought my way through all of that. Yeah. And, yeah, it does have, the Bloodborne does have a lot of those moments. And, you know, they'll just throw out the big sweeping vista because they can, but it's all the actual level, and it does kind of cohere in an interesting way. And that takes a lot of work. Uh, something interesting to point out, the um, director and team for uh, Dark Souls 1 was the fir- were also working on Bloodborne, while a different team was apparently working on Dark Souls 2. So um, there has been some chat online about that, but uh, I think in general the other big difference that, uh, that I have really been paying attention to is the combat which is a lot more in your face. Um, there are no shields in the game. So Nathan, I don't know if you used to run around with a shield a lot. They don't really have those. So it's a lot more of an aggressive fighting style. Um, which a lot of people have been bitching about online, but I actually think works really well. Um, the, your offhand now is more commonly done holding a gun, like a blunderbuss or something. Uh, for example, my character runs around with a blunderbuss, a top hat, and a cane that turns into a chain sword. That's awesome. Like Ivy from whatever. The exactly like Ivy were. from Soul Calibur. Oh, I was thinking chain sword like Warhammer 40k. No, no, not a chainsaw sword. A sword that turns into a segmented sword. They're called chain swords. On a chain. Yes, I know. And that you've reminded me. I believe Ivy was your favorite Soul Calibur character to play as, correct? Not at all. No, no. That was all. Uh, Yoshi- really? I thought you liked Ivy. That was. So- I do. I did. Uh, but most. Oh, you were Yoshimitsu. Played. I was Sofisha Yoshimitsu. That's right. Yes. My memory fails because it's always great to have a crazy mechanical wooden arm. But yeah, Bloodborne. It's good times. Um, been enjoying it a lot. I dig it. Uh, the is other it tough? Is it really hard? It, it's tough. Uh, one thing I like is they've added... They kind of expanded it out sideways some more. Like, there are more side paths that you can go on. So it's not like a big three-root thing like Dark Souls was. It's more like there are a couple of branches, and then you'll all... Everyone kind of ends up back at this point, and then a couple more branches, and everyone ends up back over here. And so there's a lot more room to go and fight something a little bit weaker if you're getting stuck on something. So I think you can you have a little bit more leeway to smooth it out, which makes it feel maybe a little bit more easy. Do you think part of the... You played Dark Souls. Right? Sure, yeah. Quickly. Almost everything but the last boss, basically. But it's so easy. Yeah. Well, Once you've... I mean, he's easy if you get to him and... You know, summon somebody to help you and what have you. Taylor Swift attack patterns. It's Taylor Swift. Taylor yeah. Swift, right? But um, I f- do you feel like a lot of your skills transferred over because you played the hell out of Dark Souls? Um, I mean, aside curiously from the enough, thing, not a lot of my skills from Dark Souls, but a lot of my skills from Demon Souls, which was for Dark Souls. Um means you're more legit than me because i didn't play it well was that console that was also that, that was also a playstation exclusive oh. although that was back when it was published by atlas publisher of all things that no one in japan thinks will sell well here 
uh, bless their crazy hearts. But, uh, yeah, because back in that game I didn't fight with a shield. I had a, a sword and a magic wand. And so I, at the same time, like, I'm back to that style of fighting where I dodge around a lot more. So I think that's the bigger difference. I just have to be more, you have to be more mobile, I think. And so that's the only real adaption that I think you might have to get used to going from one to the other. I tried to be super mobile in Dark Souls, and that's why I quit at Anorlando for a year. Yeah. Because I was using a really light shield, and the Silver Knights would just wreck me until I switched to, like, a tower shield. And then I was like, oh, yeah, you're not so bad. But when you find out that, like, most of the shields in that game don't actually stop that much damage going through. It's like yeah. a 45 or, like, 50% reduction. And when you finally, like, Google how to parry effectively, it's a game changer. Oh, God. So why is it called Bloodborne? Uh, it's very focused on blood. Uh, everything in this city revolves around weird mystical rituals performed by this blood church who, uh... Nothing could go wrong there. No, it seems like a totally solid bet. I'm not really sure how the wheels came off. But, uh, once you get into the church, you do see that they are basically praying to something that looks a lot like Cthulhu. Like, the busts in their temple are all very squid head monster thing. So, really, I mean, you know. Uh, and the other thing is, people who have been treated with the blood from this church apparently will on one end of the year, go crazy and turn into horrible monsters occasionally. And that's the night you rolled into town. Of course, because, you know, this just happened to be happened to be about right. The car broke down outside of town. And I don't really know much more than that so, about the plot yet. Uh, there's something with the moon, and someone's trying to wake up the moon, and it seems like you don't want that to happen, but it's not really clear. We do know that Taylor Swift's best friend is Lord, who is a thousand-year-old witch. Does Lord make an appearance in this game? He does not. There is an appearance Lord is by a she. Gact. Wait, Gact? Wait, really? No. <laughs> there is no Gact in this game. From Was he from Malice Miser? Is that the guy? I don't even know. I don't know. Jay Isn't one of those bands Rock, that visual case on the message board for the RPG I played in high school really liked. Exactly. Basic. Gact. I think he claims to be a thousand years old, too. That's why I mentioned it. Because that's the yeah. only thing I know about the guy. <laughs> Well, he's got great hair. Well. Does he still? Do we know? I, I have no idea. I haven't heard anybody talk about Gact in like 12 years. It's been a while. He's 1,012 now. Do you know who else has great hair? Geralt of Rivia? Motoko Kusanagi. Motoko Kusanagi, uh, yes. Ghost in the as, Shell. As George points out, I have also been watching Ghost in the Shell Arise. In particular, Ghost in the Shell Arise Alternative Architecture. Which Alternative is architecture sounds boring. I will provide some some reference, and if you know what Ghost in the Shell is, it's basically, or if you don't know what Ghost in the Shell is, rather, it is an anime, and it is a strong contender for most cyberpunk thing ever. It is a manga first and foremost. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay, thank you. You're right. I and... stand corrected. It was a manga first and foremost, which was adapted into a movie, which Ghost also in the Shell. became a you know seminal work. Yeah, it was one of the first spawned, you know, many derivative mangas and series. And yeah, George, go ahead. Sorry. And light novels and video games. Yeah, it's Ghost in the Shell was one of the first anime movies to really make an impact um, on U.S. shores, along with Akira, kind of contemporaries. Yeah, 
And I think Ghost in the Shell was a little bit later. It had some of the first CG animation. Yeah, I think- but it's very cyberpunky, extremely cyberpunk, um, really landmark in that genre. Yeah, the main the main character is uh is George said Motoko Kusanagi, who has who is a complete cyborg, so everything is robotic except her brain. Yeah, so uh, the big thing in this is that there's cyborg bodies, um, and then there's kind of like the internet and all that good stuff. And the ghost in the shell is the title refers to the ghost being kind of like your soul and the shell being kind of the cyborg metallic robot body. And whatever, well, basically whatever body you have. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, so as part of the 25th uh, anniversary of the original works coming out, the uh, there is a new show out. It was originally released as a series of four movies uh, under the name Ghost in the Shell Arise. And there are they were turned into a series called Ghost in the Shell Arise Alternative Architecture, which is airing right now. Um, and it's also streaming on the internet, if you want to go find it there. I believe it's on Netflix and Hulu, maybe? Uh, the movies are, I don't know about the show. That's licensed by Funimation, but I'm not sure if they've released it anywhere yet. Wait, so the show is different from the movies? It Well, that's what I was about to get to, which is the show is made up of the movies. Uh, each movie is split into two episodes, and they kind of line all up together to tell the continu- a continuing story like the movies do. And there are going to be two more episodes, the episode airing this weekend and next weekend. That will finish up and be new, in addition to the stuff that had been in the movies before, and will also bridge oh, so the gap to additional, a, another movie. Yeah, additional material. Yeah, it's continuing the story. And so, Motoko Kusanagi is interesting, and this is the prequel series is especially important because she's a very mysterious character in the context of the original Ghost in the Shell work. And I understand, I'm led to understand that Arise takes place in a slightly separate continuity. Um, yeah, which is the same story with the other Ghost in the Shell things they've done, like standalone complex. I mean, they're... Honest, they're different honestly, continuity the continuities the are pretty minor differences from the films. I mean, arguably. the um, In the original film, the major, uh, major Kusanagi leaves Section 9, which is the section of the Japanese police that she works for, uh, to solve some case, and something similar but not exactly the same happens in the last or in the movie they did for Standalone Complex. But details aside from that tend to be pretty similar between all the different versions. Like for example, yeah. her her special team that she works with always has the same core members. Yeah, and one of the things I like about Ghost in the Shell, and I. I haven't seen as much as you have but i deeply love ghost in the shell i like the original manga a lot i don't actually like the first movie that much but the second one innocence is fantastic standalone complex is fantastic um matoko kusanagi is a great character and then she's surrounded by some really interesting characters like bato a lot who's kind of her second in command and that's there's togusa who's the only person who isn't a cyborg on the team yeah he's kind of like the family rookie cop kind of guy who it's kind of like the junior member. You know, they're, they're all, everyone else is like ex-military types, and he's got a wife and kid. Yeah. And so they're all... It's the kind of show where they're all really, really good at their jobs. and Competence like, porn. They, 
Yeah, it, it, it really is. And they're basically this kind of semi-secret Section 9 um, section of like the state police, government police that deal with cyber crime and they just deal with a bunch of different mysteries and it's very noirish as most cyberpunk is and listen to ideas of hacking and hacking into people's souls and false memories and military corruption and industrial complexes and government corruption, all that beautiful, wonderful stuff. And she's just one of the coolest characters because she's first very cool because she's very good at what she does. She's an expert hacker. She's very good at fighting. A super wizard class hacker. (laughs) Yeah. Or whatever but, weird lingo they use for it, but yeah. She's also very sad because one of the things you find out that they get more into in Arise is that when you get deeper into her backstory, she is a hundred percent cybernetic. Or she you know, except for her brain, she's entirely cybernetic. And in this society people are have different some just have enough computer terminals in their neck that they can, you know, do the internet type stuff like Tagusa, whereas others have, you know, cybernetic arms or whatever. But the reason why she's fully cyberized and she's so profession as a hacker is that as a child, she basically lost her body. And so she's been living as a cyborg almost her entire life, which is a tremendously sad thing. And so sometimes she'll do things out of sympathy for people. And she's usually a very hard character. Yeah. When her sympathy comes out for children and people who get a rough deal, it's interesting. She's a really wonderful character. And I'm really excited to watch more of her rise because I want to find out more about her. Yeah. So, as somebody who has not seen or read anything of Ghost in the Shell, where do I start? The standalone complex. Yeah, I would, I would say I agree with George. A standalone, standalone complex, which is the first real TV series they did for it. It's fairly it came recent. Out back so when we really were, slick. It came out back when we were in college ish. Yeah. Um, but and it's. It's got all the best stuff out of it. I mean, it's got the taut, kind of weird, cyberpunky storylines with all kinds of political in- intrigue going on in the background. It's really well executed. Part of the thing you have is that in the manga, in the original manga by uh, Shiro Masamune, it's very, there's a lot of humor in it. And there's some like kind of slapstick elements alongside of like the deeper, darker stuff. Um, there's also weird sex thrown in so one of the odd things about motoko kosanagi in all of her iterations is that she wears basically like fishnets and like a bodice and a leather jacket so weird weird unitard thing yeah that's kind of odd it might be off-putting but it's also as we were discussing previous to the show she's someone who her physicality is very different from another person's physicality so that might be a different layer but shiro also um there's weird sex in the original manga that mo- in most of the American adaptations, they didn't translate that stuff over. So like the original one that I read didn't really have any of it. Um, but anyways, that's floating around. So that's a different thing. The F- ghost in the shell movie. That was the first adaptation of it was done by um, Mamoru Oshii, who's a tremendous Japanese filmmaker, but his take on the characters were, was very different. So yeah. most of the humor is gone. Bato, who is a practical joker and kind of a funny lug in the anime, is just or in, in the manga, is deeply brooding and sad and, and serious. He's just this big, serious guy. And they don't really get into any of the other characters aside from him yeah. and the major, really. And in Innocence, the major isn't even really there. And it's just Bato being like very depressed. And so it's a very different kind of 
vibe to it. Still very good, but it's a different interpretation. Plus, the movies do not have the funny, robotic, four-legged tanks oh, the that they ride around in, which are Tachikomas or Fuchikomas. Standalone Complex has them, and they're adorable. They're also in a rise. They are Logikomas. Yes. They're, but they're basically these four-legged tanks that have little hands and eyes that the people can have follow them around and can cloak. But sometimes they jump inside of them and ride them around. And in most of the inter- in the different series, they also occasionally will develop their own personalities because Bato likes to give one of them uh, natural oil rather than synthetic oil, which leads them to robot rebellions. And it's uh, great. The, 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 they do spend a lot of time in standalone complex, just hanging out, having existential discussions about, you know, whether or not machines can be people or have souls and stuff like that in a really high-pitched voice it's kind of adorable for slapstick tags at the end of every episode with the tachikomas robot philosophers yeah yeah but But i love it and it's it's very smart standalone complex is very smart in terms of the plot and the issues they deal with but it's also still got that funny lightheartedness um but it's like almost like a good procedural and then there's this big meta plot it's they separate the episodes. There's the standalone episodes, which are your procedurals, and then the complex episodes, which deal with this kind of um, overarching story in the background. I think the, f- the first one's the um, the Laughing Man. Yeah, it's the Laughing Man, which is a hacker that has a quote from J.D. Salinger floating around his head whenever you see him on camera, around his weird Starbucks logo face, actually, because you can't see his face. Yeah, just a quote from uh, Catcher on the Rye, <laughs> basically. Yeah. It's Anyways. a really awesome graphic. I have a coffee mug yeah. with it. But, uh, yeah. So that's what I've been up to. I, yeah, you do get a lot of exactly the kind of stuff you're looking for in the prequels there, George. Like, it basically starts with her leaving the job immediately before she joins Section 9 and forms the team. So it actually meshes she, pretty well with the standalone complex stuff. She's a different haircut. I think mostly because, of, I think... But they're both production production IG. I'm not sure how much was actually the same team, you know, given mm. ten years separation. But I think I can only the assume there was staff. a lot of DNA between the two. Yeah, I think some of the same over. writing staff is on it, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Anyways, that's Ghost in the Shell. Good stuff. People should check it out. It's a great science fiction work in its many different weird incarnations. Oh yes. And especially if you're into cyberpunk, it's really. Um, I meant when I said one of the most cyberpunk things ever. <laughs> yeah, and it, it totally also being a product of the 80s, that really 80s cyberpunk formative meaty stuff. Beautiful, beautiful things. Before we realized we had no idea what the internet was going to be. <laughs> they had every idea. It's going to be a bunch of people uh, just uh, spewing racial epithets at each other. Over tweets. Yeah, for now. Like Nathan does. Yeah, well. I certainly do not. The future needs Nathan. I spew dad jokes and no racial epithets. I like how you're reading baby books before you have a baby, and you're making dad jokes before you're a dad. I've been making terrible jokes my entire life, George. I feel like once you have a baby, you don't have time to be reading baby books anymore. That's too late. No, I'll be like holding the baby in one hand and like googling terrible scenarios in the other like what to do if baby you know i don't know why is my baby sweating so much why does my baby have a gun i put it there because i live in texas oh that too speaking of texas 
Mad Max. Oh, Texas. Yeah, sure. Sorry, what were you going to say, George? No, I was just going to let you say Mad Max. Oh, you, you, you played right into my hands. I don't believe you at all. Mad Max, um, is that the right That, that actually was exactly what I was doing. <laughs> Speaking of Texas, uh, George and I have seen Mad Max Fury Road, and Peter has not. Um, I saw the Road Warrior. I I watched the Road Warrior in preparation for watching Fury Road because I hadn't seen any Mad Max movies before. Really? Um, well, that's, that's good true. because now you know that you need to watch out for the humongous. And now I've seen the two good Mad Max movies, and uh, is what I'm told. The mm, you should probably still watch Thunderdome. Okay. You should watch the original <laughs> too because it's yeah. No, watch the original one. The three Mad Max movies, Road Warrior is definitely the best. Yeah. It's the one that you think of when people think of Mad Max. They're thinking of Road Warrior. Of the and, original trilogy. Yeah. And it's also, speaking of them as a trilogy is also kind of weird. Because sort of like Ghost in the Shell, their continuity is strange. And even, I've, I've heard people refer to this Mad Max Fury Road as a remake or a sequel. And that's not correct. It's not, yeah. It's Mad Max... So the first Mad Max film is really different because it takes place... It doesn't take place in the desert like you think of it with the Mad Max film. There seems to be some semblance of law and order because Mad Max is part of this police force, the Maximum Patrol Force, whatever they're called. And But they're not very well maintained. There's a lot of gangs. It's clear that society has been degrading. It's not our world. It's like a slightly crappier version of it. And then it seems like between that and Road Warrior, there seems to have been a nuclear war, which they kind of say at the beginning of uh, Fury Road is kind of tying it all together. And then in the third one, there's, you know, all this other stuff going on. And so if you follow, like, Max's car and certain characters, like, you remember the gyro captain and the and the feral kid from yeah. Road Warrior? Well, there's also a guy who flies around that has a weird kid with him in Beyond Thunderdome that's played by the same actors, but they do not seem to be the same characters in spite of the fact that they're doing the exact same things. And so it's like, that's not really like, how does that jibe as being a sequel? Like that's really odd. And Max is also doing a different thing. And anyways, it gets really confusing. And it's best viewed as a spiritual thing. It kind of reminds me of what you were saying the other week about, um, the five deadly, uh, venoms. Yes. Or five deadly, whatever's five deadly venoms. And it's very similar where it's kind of like these character archetypes, and Max is best viewed as a sort of warrior of the wasteland that comes in these people's lives. And I've heard someone interpret it as being, it's like, these are legends that people are telling about Max or about this strange figure that appeared that aren't necessarily the same person, or they might just be legends. You know, they might not be true. And that if you try and view them in continuity altogether, it's like trying to watch all the James Bond movies and claiming they're about the same person. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't right. work. But anyways, Road Warrior is good. Mad Max is really draggy and long, but it's important for two reasons. And one is it's the genesis of the character. And two, there's just some fantastic action in it that one of my favorite things about Mad Max is the director is George Miller. He was a um, ER doctor in the Outback before he made films. And he was inspired to make Mad Max by seeing a bunch of people get car crash injuries (laughs) and come into the ER. And they made Mad Max with a very low budget. And I think that up until like Blair Witch, maybe it was the highest ratio of 
like how much it costs to make to how much it grossed like independent film like for a long long time and so that's one of the reasons why it's so slow and it doesn't have the you know um you know costuming and all the great care that road warrior does was because it's just extremely low budget so you've got to keep that in mind but it's still very watchable and has some really cool parts to it and then the third one you know it's got master blaster thunderdome all that great stuff then there's this whole thing with kids and it's weird but anyways, getting back to Fury Road, Fury Road is great because it basically kind of amalgamates a lot of the stuff from all three films. And so you've got, you know, Max's car, you've got a big chase with a tanker truck, which is basically what happens in Road Warrior. You've got him saving some people, which is going on in like Beyond Thunderdome. And it's almost kind of like just like bringing everything all together into one film, which turns out to be just a giant two hour chase scene in the desert with awesome stuff happening pretty much constantly on film. And it's just beautiful. It's just a shot of adrenaline straight into your eyeballs. It was astonishing. Hmm. Astonishing. I had such high hopes for it. I was more excited for this than Avengers. Maybe when Star Wars comes around, I'll probably be more excited for Star Wars, but I was really pumped for this. And then all the reviews came out and I'm like, I'm going to be disappointed because the hype is so big. And then I saw it and I was like, well, I really want to see that again immediately. Actually, when I saw the trailers, I said, oh, well, that's stupid. They just put all the best parts of the movie in the trailer. Nope. Why should I even go see it? Nope, that's not the case. Because the whole movie <laughs> is the best part. <laughs> it's so good. It's I was ludicrous. so shocked. And, there, there was, you know, there's this whole big kerfuffle that men's rights activists, those, you know, troglodyte morons, um, were obsessed, were upset about it because they thought it was too feminist. You know, Max didn't have as big a role as they thought he should or... Charlize Theron was too cool for them or something, but, and they're right. It's, it's a feminist uh, film, oddly, but it's amazing. And it's amazing. Well, that was something that was interesting to me was I'd heard people talking about it as a feminist film before it came out. And I was thinking, well, maybe they're just extrapolating too much from Charlize Theron, you know, being so prominent in the advertising and this and that, and, you know, it won't really be, but I'd learned afterwards that they'd actually, I forget her name, but she's the um playwright who came up with the vagina monologues they actually brought her to set and george miller talked with her to try and bring out like he really did want to make it a a a film of feminist things and was consulting with people about this thank you yeah what's her name again eve ensler yeah and so he really that was something he really wanted to be in the film which i think is great and comes through i think it really is like it it deserves those bona fides i i love that this isn't really a spoiler um Max Max is definitely the main character of the first three books. He's not actually the main character, or first three movies, excuse me. He's not actually the main character of, he's not the protagonist of Fury Road. It's Charlize's, Charlize Theron's character, Imperio, or Imperator Furiosa. Yeah. Like, Max legitimately spends about a third of the movie as another character's blood bag. And I, by that I mean he's strapped to something draining blood into this other guy. <laughs> like, that's, that's his amazing. role. And so good. Hardy, I'd expected Hardy to be awesome in it. And he he doesn't have a lot to work with because he isn't given a lot of lines. And he plays Max as being so wasted by the wasteland. He's almost animalistic. Also has been drained of blood for most of the movie. So that probably is part of his interpretation. Um, But it really is Imperator Furiosa's movie. And I also liked, I think, Nux, who is the guy who is strapping Mad Max into his blood veins. Um, he's played by the guy, I can't remember his name, but he played Beast in, in Future Past. I loved Nux. I thought he was a great character. Nicholas Holt? 
Yes. He played one of the villain Immortan Joe's war boys who are these weird, fanatically loyal, semi-suicidal driver, leaper, stabber people that work for him. And he was, he gave a really good performance as well. I liked Nux a lot. Hmm. Um, but it's, yeah, it was like, it's just, the action is so good. George Miller spent a lot of time, you know, this, it's mostly practical effects. Ooh, there's a couple, I always you know, like a giant, yeah, there's a giant like CG fire tornado that you see, but like all of the stunts are like things actually being destroyed. And some of the shots are just composed so beautifully. There's this part where they're motorcycles leaping over this truck, dropping bombs on it. And I'm just like, this is gorgeous. They were oh. real motorcycles actually leaping over it, dropping actual like stunt grenades onto it. Yeah. But it looked so good on film. And the other thing that's fun is, you know, it's really been in vogue to have these dystopias and desaturate it and make everything look really grainy and gray. And George Miller was like, we're going to turn up all of the color <laughs> and just blast you with colors. Saturation. So it's so bright. And the action. It's all right. In 15 very... years, everything is going to be that saturated. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be taking a lot from this film and we need kind of a shift in action, I feel like. But he, the action is very discreet. It's not, it's got quick cuts and things like that. But even like when they're doing the hand to hand stuff, you can tell where everybody is, how they're related to each other. It's just it's really coherent. well blocked. Yeah. Coherent. Um, great story. Great action. So entertaining. Like you come away from the movie, like you've seen a spectacle, but it's not just empty thrill calories like the Star Trek remake films. It's, something you can grasp onto it's really meaty hmm. and somebody pointed out that for a movie about rescuing sex slaves there's no and unlike road warrior there's no sexual violence in it there's no like gratuitous nudity there's there's not a lot of gore even yeah except for one pretty notable uh thing at the end yeah and in a lesser film too you'd have imperator furiosa and mad max just kissing at the end for no reason other than they're the male and female leads and you'd expect yeah. that and here it's not like that um Amorton joe oh bringing back from the first movie Amorton joe is actually played by toe cutter who's the villain from the first film <laughs> so they brought him into that which is kind of cool somebody pointed out how unlikely this movie was to happen to do a mad max remake and give it to the original director and give him $150 million when his last two movies were like Babe, Pig in the City. and um, Happy Feet. Happy Feet. Yes. His other big films besides Mad Max. I love this about George Miller. Yeah. His that's... other big, big film franchises are Babe and the Happy Feet. Did you see? He didn't do Babe 1, I don't think. But he Babe did. But Babe 2, Pig in the City, is deeply weird. <laughs> I've heard that it's deeply weird. It's so surreal. Like the city is an amalgamation of every city. Like, it's got the Sydney Opera House, Paris, uh, the Eiffel Tower, the Space Needle. It's like the Ur City. <laughs> and there's like, oh, it's so, it's so deeply weird. I highly recommend it. I want to watch it again, actually. It's like a, a surreal nightmare. Oh, and I'm mistaken. George movie. Miller didn't direct the first Babe, but he did produce and write the screenplay. But yeah, he directed Babe, Pig in the City. And I've heard, I've heard that it's very odd and it makes me kind of want to see it. Um. It's pretty cool. Yeah. To have a weird movie about a talking pig for kids that's made by the guy who invented Mad Max. I want to, I really want to watch Fury Road again now. I, what, like about halfway through watching it, I was like, I really need to see this again in 3D. I didn't watch this one in 3D. And 
it's one that I think actually might be really good. It's just so visually appealing. And it really is one I plan on seeing more than once. Yeah. I saw it in 3D, and I uh, I recommend seeing it in 3D. It wasn't filmed in 3D. They had originally intended to do so, but I think there was a lot of... It was like a 10-year process that this thing was in development hell. Um, anyway, they didn't shoot it in 3D, but the 3D conversion is pretty good. Um, there's a lot of, like, two-plane stuff. There is uh, the bit at the end, really though. stylized look. Where stuff is exploding, and they just start throwing crap at the screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had to do that. Um, yeah, I, I saw it in 3D. I don't see a lot of movies in 3D. I think it's like the third movie I saw in 3D ever, but uh, totally worth it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And Peter, you need to go out and see it. I was going to say, it's, I think I might be going to see this movie tomorrow. <laughs> I yes. think you should. We are yeah, not ruling it, it out. I think it's a movie. It's going to be interesting to see how it withstands the test of time. And one one thing that's interesting to me, though, is in this day and age, it seems like it's very something will come out. People will say, oh, it's amazing. And then the next week, there's all these thought pieces about, well, actually, it's not. And here's the reasons why. And there's the cycle that we keep going through for everything that's kind of big and dominant, whether it's music or movies or uh, TV shows. And yeah, things so f- missing some staying power, you mean? Yeah, yeah, and so far I haven't seen that start with Mad Max. It started out with a lot of hype and people being big about it, but I haven't seen anyone come out and be like, oh no, it's not good, except for the aforementioned MRA types who, you know, who cares? So I think that's kind of cool in and of itself. It's like True Detective. True Detective came out, people were like, oh, this is great, and then they're like, oh, this is actually not good. And got more critical of it. And I'm curious to see if that does happen with Mad Max eventually. Because it's still pretty fresh. I think it's only been out for two weeks. But I, There was a little bit of people saying, oh, well, it's not actually a feminist film because of this. And then other people being like, well, no, it, it actually is. There was a very minor, like, mini backlash. But it wasn't even a mini backlash. It was a, like a disagreement they're like the argument was like you know problems are still solved by violence and all the you know main ideas come from a dude but like that's not really it, it can be a violent film and still be a feminist film yeah and i wouldn't agree that the main ideas come from a dude because the whole plot is kickstarted by imperator furiosa yeah. making a choice to do what she does um and and also the you know the beauties whatever they call them i forget what and Morgan Joe's term is, but you know, they choosing to leave and yeah. not be living in this horrible nightmare place, you know, so it's totally driven by their choice. Max just kind yeah. of stumbles into it and makes like one good idea. Yeah. Like he's got a suggestion yeah. at the end, but I don't think that negates the whole idea yeah. of the film. Um, I think, yeah, it'll be interesting to see that. And it's also, you can't make a, a film that's going to be perfectly happy for every single person that watches it. That's not possible. Not possible. Um, great cast though you got you know Tom Hardy Charlie Theron Nicholas Holt you've got uh, Zoe Kravitz as Toast the Knowing the names in this film let me just read off some names of the characters you've got of course Nux and Imperator Furiosa the bad guy is Immortan Joe you've got Capable Toast the Knowing Cheeto the Fragile Rictus Erectus the People Eater the Bullet Farmer the Doof Warrior the Organic Mechanic and then a couple of other people. I Those love are the great Doof Warriors so oh, much. Oh man, 
The, that was Ellie's favorite character. The organic um, mechanic is a good name. The Doof Warrior is a man who is on top of a giant truck that has a bunch of Kodo drums, and he has a flaming double-necked guitar that he just wails on to inspire the rest of the war boys to continue their pursuit. So occasionally you'll hear this like really cool music and it's actually diegetic coming from within the film universe as it kind of fades in and you see the truck getting closer and this guy just jamming on the guitar and shooting fire out of it. That beautiful. It's awesome. Yeah. And in case you're worried about whether or not he gets into a fight with Max at some point. Oh, it happens. I wasn't worried. It happens. <laughs> to do four years. Amazing. The bullet farmer pulls a bullet out of his teeth which is great. He was great. Uh, it's just, it's, yeah, I'm all about it. And <laughs> the guy who plays the do four year just goes by the name Iota. <laughs> That's amazing. Like the Greek letter. Yeah. Huh. Okay. That's great. Yeah. An actual musician, apparently. Hmm. Oh, wow. His father is Maori and his mother is English, and he grew up in Western Australia. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah, it's Mad Max. I really like the Mad Max films a lot. Um, and I felt that this was just a tremendous entry to the genre. I think it's going to be an important film that people are going to look back on, which is just so odd because it is just a really loud, boisterous film, like just action movie. But it just works on so many different levels. It's just so tight visually and narratively. It's very economical in terms of how you learn about the characters. There's not too much dialogue and exposition, but you, you really get a sense of, of who these people are. Oh, the, the other thing I was going to say, the only negative thing I've heard about it is um, someone I work with said that she didn't enjoy it because Max didn't have anything to do or was hardly in it or it wasn't really about Max. And to me, it's like, who cares when you're dealing with such an interesting, strange world of intensity. Like, that didn't bother me at all. And I love Max Rokotansky. Yeah. So good. Tom Hardy's so good. He's a tremendous actor. Like, 13 feet tall. He is, yeah, 13 feet tall. He's very large. You guys, have you guys seen Bronson? No. Yes. Yes. But he plays Charles Bronson. He plays the other Charles Bronson, which is uh, Britain's most notorious and dangerous uh, prisoner. He's a guy who's been in jail for like 30 or 40 years that spends most of his time in solitary because whenever he gets out, he just beats people up and is uh, kind of a lunatic. He took his name Charles Bronson when he was free briefly as a bare-knuckle boxer. The film Bronson itself is a tremendous study of violence and it's very stagey and postmodern experimental. It's a great film and it's, it really relies on yeah. Tom Hardy to do the heavy lifting of this just weird character. And it's, it's a beautiful film. I love it. It's a lot of fun. It's really, he does a really good job with that, with that guy. Yeah. It's, really it's out there. Really bizarre, strange character. I guess it's not a character versus an actual person. Yeah, well, right. Charles Bronson himself is a character, and I believe he now goes by the name Charles Salvador because he now wants to dedicate himself towards being an artist and... Melting clocks? 
yeah, he's renounced violence and, uh, um, except towards clocks claims he's a different guy and, and wants to be about, you know, Salvador Dali or something. And melting clocks. And melting clocks. I'm not going to let watch... it go. <laughs> Don't let it go. I didn't. You should watch Bronson, um, Nathan, at some point. We should talk about it because it's a film that we can okay. really dig into. It's on Netflix. Yeah. And I love it. Very odd. Okay. Thank you. Well, I think that should wrap us up. Yeah. I think that's good. I think, yeah. I think I'm feeling pretty wrapped. Feeling pretty wrapped. Rap, we got Bronson. Rap, rap, we got some Taylor Swift. Ghost in the Shell Arise. It's all good up in here. And on that bombshell, we will bring this episode of Lizard People, Dear Readers, to a close. In the next episode, we will be discussing The Peripheral by William Gibson. So if you would like to know what we're talking about, uh, go and read it. Oh, yes, absolutely. Forgot to do that. Yes, please do. Um, no, we, we mentioned it at the beginning. Did we? We mentioned it at the beginning, but we'll mention it now. Yeah, it's okay. I have no memory of the past hour. George cannot form short-term memories. I've told you about my condition, haven't I? Hundreds of times. Let me tell you about Sammy Gemmel. How did that go? Sammy Davis Jr.? Sammy Davis Jr. It was about Sammy Davis Jr. We should stop. Sammy Jankus. Sammy Jankus. Did I ever talk about Sammy Jankus? Find John G. Find John G. And on that bombshell, we are, as always, lizard people. Lizard people. Dear Dear readers. readers. We're all supposed to say that? No. All right. Bye-bye. This has been Lizard People, Dear Readers, a production of Yellow Sonar Industries. Sound engineering is performed by Matthew Quiet of Podcom Services. All music written and performed by Stephen Edwards. Updates and information can be found at lizardpeopledearreaders.com. Contact us on Twitter at drlizardpeople or by email at lizardpeopledearreaders at gmail.com. Very few humans were harmed during the making of this production.